Have you ever wondered what makes a story compelling? What makes characters flat or complex? What makes a scene hit the gas or the brakes? No? Well, we'll make this episode fun for you anyway. Today's book is Story by Sir Robert McKee. <laughs> He's not actually a knight, but it just feels like everyone named Robert should be. And this is the book pile. What names don't sound better when you add Sir or Dame to them? Oh, I think Susan. <laughs> Dame Susan <laughs> McGee. Just sounds like you're mad at her. Sir Dame Lillard. <laughs> Speaking of which, I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I wish I could say I'm a storyteller as well, but Dave Grohl came in and copyrighted that. <laughs> he just planted his flag in it with a capital S. So I guess, as Alan Dean Foster would say, I'm an adventure elocutionist. <laughs> And I'm David Vance. Storytelling is one of the most pure and impactful human creations, is what actors tell themselves while pretending to be a man who is like an ant. <laughs> also, a quick heads up, my sound quality may shift throughout the episode. I'm on tour this week, so I've had to put together another makeshift soundproof podcast studio in my hotel room. Essentially, leaning a mattress against a wall and sitting under it. And this one is particularly unstable and seems to be slowly collapsing above me. So if you ever hear at some point just a muffled scream, I'm at the Bradley Hotel in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If you want to see me live, here's a quick rundown. Listen for your state. This week, April 26th, I'm in Tacoma, Washington. Then 27th through the 29th, I will be in Spokane, Washington. Has it been a different mispronunciation every time? Yeah, I think I've hit all the vowels, so now I, have to, I think I have to go to diphthongs. <laughs> May 6th, Cap City, Austin, Texas. Then June 15th, I'll be doing an outdoor show in Mill Valley, California, across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. Then July 7th through the 8th, I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. Then July 9th, Mondovi, Wisconsin. Go to kellenerskin.com for tickets please <laughs> sorry going back to dave grohl for just a second it's funny too because we covered his autobiography which for context he published as the storyteller but really <laughs> it should have been called i'm a storyteller just in this book but other than that i'm mainly a rock star who yeah. sings songs <laughs> because that's what he does and he has great songs but even those aren't stories like He's no Jethro Tull. <laughs> Thank heavens for that, though. I don't need a 40-minute flute song that starts with Once Upon a Time. <laughs> anyway, the book we're covering today, Story. Dave introduced me to this first, and I loved it. It was the most specifically instructional book I've read on the structure of stories. I will say that it's a bit niche. Like I can't just recommend it to everyone the way I do with Project Hail Mary or the novelization of the Transformers movie because it's written with screenwriters in mind. But as I said, we'll still keep this episode fun and funny for everyone listening. And with the stuff I'll be sharing from the book, I tried to keep it broad enough that even for non-screenwriters, which is arguably most of the world outside L.A. County, hopefully everyone will at least walk away with maybe a greater appreciation for the stories they encounter and a greater disdain for the bad ones. I'm trying to create more snobs. 
Okay, like always, check out our YouTube video of this episode, link in bio, leave a comment to tell us what you think. And to keep you updated on the slowly collapsing King mattress over me, it is now in full contact with my forehead, and I feel like I may be getting bed lice in my scalp. All right, and without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from story. All right. Lesson one, make me empathize with bad people. So this was a dark fortune that I once received from a Panda Express cookie. (laughs) McKee writes, when it comes to characters, sympathy is optional. Empathy, absolute. And he means all characters on all sides of the story. He talks about how Macbeth on the outside is a monster, killing so many people, including his best friend. He says, quote, But in Shakespeare's hands, he makes a tragic, empathetic hero as he wanders in soliloquy, agonizing over why he is doing this. What kind of man am I? The audience listens and thinks, what kind? Guilt-ridden, as am I. Macbeth is a human being, and he has a conscience just like mine. I would also add a footnote that if you're in the 4% of the population that doesn't have a conscience, then this isn't going to be your takeaway. (laughs) Right? Like a sociopath watching Shakespeare is just thinking, I wish everyone would stop talking to themselves and just get on with the murdering. (laughs) I found this idea profound that I really do empathize with people, not because they're going through something that I've specifically gone through before, but because they feel something I have felt before. Yeah. McKee also answers the question of how, as an audience, we could possibly feel like we're on Hannibal Lecter's side in Silence of the Lambs. He says, Lecter's massive intelligence, sharp wit, gentlemanly charm. You all right? I used to have a frog in my throat, but I've also created this prison so it's hard to get out and access water at the moment. (laughs) I don't have to undig myself. He died as he lived, smothered by a mattress, which I guess is not how he lived. (laughs) Sorry, Hannibal Lecter. So he has all these likable qualities, and to counter them, McKee says, the writers then surround Lecter with brutish people. His psychiatrist is sadistic, his guards are dimwits, the FBI lies to him, you know, making him more of a victim. Uh, And with all this, we end up thinking, and this is McKee (laughs) with one of his few jokes in the whole book, he says that we think, so he eats people. There are worse things. (laughs) Offhand, I can't think of any, but uh, we fall into empathy thinking if I were going to be a cannibalistic psychopath, I'd want to be just like Lecter. (laughs) And I I think this is why kids dress up like Darth Vader. I think for adults, uh, we empathize uh, with Vader because he's just a dude torn between priorities, you know, his job and his family. (laughs) I do think about how my favorite villains usually have so many of the qualities of a hero, right? Mm. Like Amy in Gone Girl, she's charismatic, she's smart, she's funny, she's popular and attractive. It just so happens she's also murderous and vengeful, (laughs) but everything else about her is great. (laughs) Right. Even with all the horrors she's committed, you feel bad for her when something bad happens to her. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I guess my takeaway is you can be a, a bad person, That's it.
<laughs> people will still like you. I, I think that's what McKee was saying. <laughs> All right, lesson two. Choose between good and good or bad and bad. Kellen, I'm going to pitch you a different version of Breaking Bad and give me your notes. Tell me if you like it more, less than the original. I will take it personally. We open on Walter White. Handsome. He's never been healthier. (laughs) Successful, full of self-respect. Family life is magical. Very wealthy. (laughs) One day he has to decide, do I cook methamphetamine or not do that? (laughs) Do you have any notes? Um, Yeah. How do I get this guy's life? (laughs) At the end of my pilot, the dad from the Brady Bunch comes out and explains why meth is bad. (laughs) We do five seasons of the White family's incredible life, and Walt ends every day by choosing not to cook meth. (laughs) So one one of the main points of the book is we think our stories are about choosing between good and evil, but they're not because that choice is so obvious. He says that basically the best stories are about choosing between good and good or bad and bad. Because mm. here's the actual choice for Walter. Do I die of cancer and leave my family in debt and you know go out as a huge failure? Or do I do this horrific thing and break the law and cook meth? He's picking between terrible options. And that's why the story is compelling. It's, you know, that's where we get to know him as a character. Mm. It's like that old Jean Valjean question of, would you cook meth to feed your family? I assume that's what it's about. I I don't speak French. (laughs) Blue, the color of the drug. White, the color name of the guy who bakes it. Pink men helps him make the drug. (laughs) Schwartz is the name of his partner, and that's German for black. (laughs) Well, to come full circle, um, true fact, the miserable is actually the city motto of Albuquerque. (laughs) (laughs) Have I told you my Albuquerque story? No, what's that? After school, I moved from Utah to Dallas. And Albuquerque was the midway point. So that day began with me saying goodbye to all my friends and family and ended with me in Albuquerque. (laughs) Can you imagine a worse descent? (laughs) Speaking of going from bad to bad. (laughs) Yeah. I stayed in this terrible motel and was like, is my car going to get robbed tonight? (laughs) Yeah, it sucks when you wake up, find out you've been robbed And it just makes sense to you. (laughs) Then when I moved back, made the same drive, and this time when I stayed in Albuquerque, I stayed in someone's really nice house, and I woke up and randomly, it was that air balloon festival they have every year. (laughs) I was like, where was this when I actually needed it? (laughs) I wish I had a hot air balloon right now to lift this mattress off of my body. (laughs) So, Kellen, to illustrate this principle of pick between good and good or bad and bad, picture the stand-up comic you personally hate the most. Mm -hmm. Would you rather achieve all your professional dreams, but they achieve them double, or three-quarters of your dreams and they get nothing? (laughs) I think before you even asked me, you knew that my answer was going to be number two. Oh, (laughs) 
Dang, I tried to make it pretty even. No, it, it should be more of a dilemma <laughs> for me. I almost made it half your dreams and they get nothing, but I was like, no, it's got to be pretty even. <laughs> yeah, you could start that auction way lower. <laughs> I mean, let's bring it down to 15% if you promise me this guy will never find love. <laughs> Dave, would you rather, for the rest of your life, scream loudly every time you spoke or fart quietly? <laughs> well, Ami already thinks I do the first one. <laughs> I think fart quietly because I could at least try to accommodate that. I could at least be trying to sit down, but I talk so much that it would ruin my life if I were always screaming. <laughs> But then with your with the farting with your conversations you would always have to be on the move or everyone would still end up hating you. <laughs> I would just look for the most absorbent cushion in any room. <laughs> this one's going to be a little medical. Would you rather have no privates but everyone thinks you do or have privates but everyone thinks you don't? <laughs> It should be that obviously that I I want them, but I also I mean, like how many headlines am I making with this second option? <laughs> and also, the more you tried to convince people you had them, the less they would believe you. <laughs> now I want to know your answer. <laughs> I think I would pick have them, and everyone thinks I don't. Yeah, because at least that's a conversation starter. <laughs> and then there's also got to be something interesting about why they all think I don't. <laughs> All right, Dave. <laughs> I can see how this next one that I have could result in what we just talked about. Would you rather go water skiing naked or <laughs> run a marathon wearing all the clothes you own? <laughs> Who is there when I'm water skiing naked? I do think it's uh, everyone that you love, but it, it's less about that and more just about, I, for me, the safety issue there. <laughs> If we're just talking safety, I'm experienced enough as a water skier that I would do that. No, you have to do jumps and stuff for the first time ever. I forgot to add that part. <laughs> but thanks for the my dad is rich flex right there. <laughs> All right, Kellen, would you rather be good or evil? That was just an example of a bad version of this. Oh. <laughs> All right. Lesson three. Text is better with subtext, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so McKee says, if the scene is about what it is about, then you are in deep poop. And of course, I'm censoring that quote. He doesn't say deep. He says fathomless. Uh, the point being... He also writes for the Transformers. <laughs> for sure, he wanted Shia LaBeouf to say, oh, no, we're in fathomless poop. <laughs> The point being to try not to be on the nose about everything. Like in one scene, you could have two lovers argue in a kitchen about their relationship. Or, as McKee cites Casablanca, you could have them in a department store ostensibly quarreling over the purchase of bedsheets with like a symbolic layer under each statement. 
another example is from not a perfect movie, but a great scene in I think in Signs when Mel Gibson sits down with his kids and River Phoenix's brother and asks them what each of their favorite foods are so that he can make them all for dinner. It's not because he's a great dad. In fact, it's kind of the opposite because while his kids don't know it, he's lost hope and he thinks that mm. this is going to be their last meal alive. But that that's never stated, right? And that's the point. Another reason why I'm making this M. Night Shyamalan example is that, admittedly, as I claim to be a film snob, Casablanca is still one of those classics that I haven't seen, but I've been meaning to. Oh. <laughs> It's that crazy thing where I've read thousands of books, but the moment I confess to someone that I haven't read, like, Catcher in the Rye, they act like I've never read a book. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there are a lot of books. Well, you should know, Kellen, that the essential books are whatever the other person in the convo has read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just to add this, here's another quote from McKee. The scene is not about what it is about. It's about something else, and that something else will bring it to life. The therapist writes down what the patient does not say, mm -hmm. which is why when I'm in therapy, I just don't talk. I don't because it's always a scream. <laughs> I just sit and quietly fart. <laughs> uh, subtext. <laughs> Lesson four, the story has to work short before it can work long. So we know there's an ongoing debate between plotters and pantsers, where plotters like to map everything out and pantsers fly by the seat of their pants. But McKee is a pretty big plotter, and for any plotters listening, he has a pretty cool tip. He says, you know, long before you write your whole screenplay or write your whole book, write the outline and then tell it to your friends and see if that works. Hmm. And then fix what's not working, because he says, if it can't work in 10 minutes, no way will it work in 110 minutes. Interesting. Yeah. I love that, because it's it's great to know much faster what's broken in your story. Tangentially, it reminds me of uh, Stephen Wright, who's one of my favorite comedians, this one-liner comic who started in the 80s. He wrote this short film called The, uh, the Appointments of Dennis Jennings, and he won an Oscar. Wow. Part of his acceptance speech, he gets up there holding the Academy Award, and he says, I'm so glad that I cut the last two hours of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, random facts. He talks about how every story has an obligatory scene, meaning the scene that you know has to happen before the story can end. So in Star Wars, you know Luke has to confront Darth Vader. Mm. That's why I've mentioned before, I think it's so funny that the prophecy in Harry Potter 5 just tells us the thing we already knew. <laughs> like, Harry, this guy who's been hunting you five books will keep doing that. <laughs> I'd love a version of that last Harry Potter where he's like, hey, what happened to that Voldemort guy? And it's just like, oh, uh, you didn't hear? Uh, McGonagall killed him. <laughs> Dave, I just erased our whiteboard where we had written uh, episodes that we have gone without mentioning Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I erased a zero and just wrote another zero. <laughs> so, Dave, as I've always said, don't IMDb your heroes. I looked up Robert McKee, 
And with all of his undisputed wisdom about screenwriting, he is mainly credited as being involved with Mrs. Columbo and a string of straight-to-DVD Barbie cartoons. (laughs) (laughs) How do we know they're bad, though? (laughs) I still defend him, though, because all of his story analysis is very good. I think that it's—you can't discredit physicists— For telling us the structure of an atom when they've never actually made an atom themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I saw a great example of surprise in storytelling yesterday. My niece Eliza turned three, so I was FaceTiming her and she said, knock, knock. I said, who's there? She said, no one, and then hung up. (laughs) (laughs) She thought it was so funny. She did it four times. (laughs) At one point, McKee states that The premise of a story should be a clear question. And then he says of the movie Jaws, what if a shark devoured a vacationer? And I do agree that a premise can be a question, but that's not the Jaws question. (laughs) Like (laughs) The Jaws question is, what if a shark ate a local of a small touristy beach town three days before their busiest, most (laughs) profitable day of the year? But to simplify it down to his very general inaccurate first one, it's like saying that the premise of Lord of the Rings is, what if a short guy went on a hike? (laughs) It's like, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. What if there's Anna Karenina? (laughs) (laughs) What if a racist boy makes a raft with his friend? (laughs) What if you caught 22? (laughs) What if you played the worst baseball position in a bunch of rye? (laughs) (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from story. One, make me empathize with bad people. Two, choose between good and good or bad and bad. Three, text is better with subtext. Four, the story has to work short before it can work long. And five, the next time that you have to construct an impromptu recording studio in your hotel room, just make sure that the mattress is properly... Kellen's fine. What gesture would Atlas make if he wasn't quite sure... 